Please join me in welcoming to the Distinctive Voices podium, Dr. Carl Kottman. Thank you, Jennifer. Is this on now? Okay, good. Yeah. Um, this is one of these ones where it, re it, it gets activated remotely, which is sort of a first for me at least. So anyway, uh, welcome and this, uh, you know, sort of new darkness at, at this time of night. You know, kind of a little bit uh, interesting to drive around in places you're familiar with and say, no, wait a minute, where the heck is this? So anyway, <clears throat> um, I'm, I'm pleased to be able to be here and share with you a message on um, cognitive health building and how um, we really can make a big difference in this country and even worldwide with promoting the value of exercise to individuals, particularly in the elderly. So <clears throat> today I'm going to share with you some recent data um, about how exercise can actually build brain health. Right now, um, Alzheimer's disease, which I'm sure everyone knows about, uh, which is a sort of dementia, uh, <clears throat> is uh, increasing because of the aging population and some of the increase in risk factors. So this um, is, is going to essentially reach 30 to 40% of the population for those over 85, which is just downright scary. <clears throat> and we really need to do something about it. I'm not sure that there's gonna be one magic solution, but there will be a series of uh, solutions and the, the sort of new guy on the block is lifestyles, which can have a profound difference. The startling fact is that um, there have been no new FDA-approved drugs for Alzheimer's disease since 2003, uh, when Namenda, a cholinesterase inhibitor, came out despite over 400 trials. That's not a very good track record, to say the least. And it's, it, it really hit the pharmaceutical business as being really, um, you know, kind of non-profitable area to be in. And some of them actually sort of went out of research because of the unlikelihood that they would succeed. Nonetheless, <clears throat> we are succeeding. And one of the big uh, changes is to show that lifestyles have emerged as an effective strategy to lay the onset and improve symptoms uh, of cogn cognition as uh, individuals age. And it's, it's kind of a well-hidden story, but gaining traction. So what are some of the modifiable risk factors? Well, you can kind of imagine most of them. Certainly uh, diabetes, which we hear about, and even uh, uh, the threat to the younger population and maybe diabetes becoming even more prevalent uh, because of lifestyle differences. Hypertension in the elderly is certainly an issue. Obesity, uh, smoking, depression. Depression is actually uh, able to affect cognition, of course. Um, and then uh, cognitive inactivity and finally, physical inactivity. So what would you think is number one in that list? The last one? It may be the position is the way I, I probably gave it away, didn't I? <laughs> okay. So in the, in the US, physical inactivity is in fact the number one. 40% uh, of the US population is actually considered to be sedentary, which is really pretty amazing when you think about it because that it's defined as somebody that doesn't do more than a couple hours of activity a week. And that's really um, almost hard to do. But <laughs> <laughs> number two is, is surprisingly dep depression. Number three, smoking. And then finally, obesity, and mid, particularly midlife obesity. 
Worldwide cognitive inactivity from low education is higher uh, as number one in, in, in smoking too because of the um, prevalence in many of the populations, including a lot of the European countries. And this is work that um, I really have to give a hand to Deborah Barnes and Christine Yaffe when they put this together. And it, it's not what you'd call bedside reading, but it's certainly a, a, a fact that is really quite startling. And most people write individual papers on each of these. They decided to take on the whole issue and came out with this exciting uh, finding, which is something that we can pivot off of and build on. Okay, so physical inactivity is the number one modifiable risk factor. And I ran across this not too long ago, that sitting is the new smoking. So, you know, it's, uh, it, it's almost true because smoking, of course, is a risk factor and so is sedentary behavior. Um, and I, I read these little newsletters that you, get from, you can get from the Mayo Clinic, which I find really useful and, and accurate. And so this was the first place I saw this, and uh, maybe they originated, and I'm not sure. <clears throat> okay, so what I'm going to talk about this evening is essentially a three-part story. <clears throat> you know, it's kind of like chapters, and this, in this case, the book is only three chapters. But there's a lot in these chapters that's really worth knowing about and thinking about. So can exercise improve, oops, gosh darn it, big, big fingers. Can exercise improve learning and memory? And how does exercise act on the brain? Interesting because of course, you know, the brain is not out there jogging, your muscles are. So there's something uh, in, by which the brain gets activated and can encode the effects of exercise. And we'll talk about that. And then, uh, is brain aging caused by an epigenetic repression of gene transcription? And I'll talk about some of the epigenetic changes. Uh, epigenetic means sort of past genetics of, you know, what you inherit is, is genetic, but what you can acquire in terms of reprogramming the, the DNA and the transcriptional machinery is really in the field of epigenetics. And that can be really long-lasting and very powerful. <clears throat> then I'll talk about um, can physical activity drive gene expression in the human brain? And you'd say, well, how the heck are you gonna do that? Stay tuned, I will tell you. <clears throat> And uh, it's sort of an, it's an interesting, exciting story. And then I'm going to tell you about some new clinical studies on exercise that are underway. So, three-part story, and we'll unfold them now. Okay, so um, exercise improves learning and memory. <clears throat> Initially, it was pioneered in animal models. And this is kind of the, the um, technique that was used. This is a radial arm maze where the animal is put in the center and then there's a food reward in one of these arms and uh, the animal gets to uh, find the food and then there, there's a delay and then the animal's put back into the middle and uh, you know has a number of trials to get and find the food reward. So it's sort of spatial memory. And it's, it, it kind of reminds me of if you don't park in the same place, but even in, not even close to the same place, this is what you're doing. You're, you're solving this little maze. And in UCI parking lots, sometimes that's for sure happening. So uh, what we see here is um, that the exercised uh, rodents do better on solving the task uh, more readily and, and getting the target correct more percentage of the time. Um, this type of effect has been demonstrated where running and exercise improves uh, <clears throat> performance on several tasks. Um, you know, there's been 
the uh, Morris water maze, which is pretty much what I showed you, the radial arm maze, fear conditioning, um, object location memory, and pattern separation. And we can imagine pattern separation where you have uh, positions of things that are identical and you have to figure out the pattern and where is the uh, novel, what, what's been changed, so what's novel. And again, that's sort of a practical matter that we see in everyday life. And <clears throat> these, these kinds of changes of exercise affecting uh, a variety of tasks is really true in multiple species, mouse, rat, dog, and primate. And so it's really a principle. You know, I, uh, when I first uh, started working on it, I was working in mouse and rat. And then um, I was doing some studies in aged dogs uh, in order to develop a diet that was good for the dogs and would maybe translate to people. And we tried then some animals and getting some dogs to run on a treadmill. And it was actually not that hard once you got them so that they were, their feet didn't go slip in between the, the belt and the, the, the um, space in there. But once you trained them, they, were, they learned how to do it and they were enthusiastic. They would wait and when somebody would come to take them for their daily exercise, they would go out, jump on the treadmill and start. <laughs> and that's what we need to get more people to do, see? <laughs> so, um, anyway, it's become a big principle. And, um, and my associate and I, uh, um, uh, Nicole Birchold uh, reviewed this uh, several times and it, even more recently. So what about in people? Well, surprisingly, this delayed. This didn't happen until more recently. And the first clinical trial was actually not until 2008. And it was really a very uh, understudied area and came out in one of the best uh, New England Journal of Medicine, which is one of the top journals uh, in the medical field. And it consisted of 119 subjects with a subjective memory complaint. And um, they had been in 19 months of home-based physical intervention of usual or usual care. So it wasn't really do nothing, of course. It was just do what you usually do. And they compared that to home-based physical intervention of being active and doing activities around the house. And it really wasn't that well controlled and you would expect maybe it didn't work, but in fact it did. It improved phys physical activity of like 110 minutes per week, significantly improved, improved this Alzheimer's disease assessment scale uh, cognitive measures 1.3 fold. Now, the reason that's really impressive, it's 1.3, is that is the same increase that was seen with the best drug available at the time for Alzheimer's disease. So the, the physical intervention was rivaling the pharmaceuticals at this point. And in fact, still is, is doing as well as possible. Uh, oh. <laughs> Um, so this was published, and then there were similar data came out by Laura Baker et al. in 2010, and she showed clearly that it wasn't just a global effect, but it was really the, one of the functions that benefited the most was executive function, that is decision making and making choices uh, strategically. So um, the studies though, however, were relatively small and the, the results, there was some variation. And we'll come back to this later on because we're now doing a much larger intervention study for people with mild cognitive impairment. And I'll tell you and update you on progress on that. But uh, Lagerlager was the first in 2008. And <clears throat> okay, other stories, other studies have come in that are more descriptive in nature and descriptive uh, studies, if they're longitudinally followed, can be very, can be very persuasive. Um, the hoarder in group uh, from Sweden uh, followed physically fit women um, 
and showed that they're 90, the physically fit women are 90% less uh, to uh, develop dementia. Uh, and th this was a, based on 191 women that were followed longitudinally for 44 years. So they had a really good baseline and then they were looking independently at the amount of physical activity and the ones that were high fit uh, did uh, so well that only 5% of those with high fitness developed dementia. And that's compared to, you know, remember in that uh, second slide, it was like 40% can develop dementia. So this is incredible. Uh, and in contrast, 25% uh, of those with moderate fitness and 32% of those with low fitness in this study developed dementia. So this really got my attention in the whole field because here it wasn't just making a little difference, it was basically only 5% developed dementia. And that's, a, that's basically close to a cure. So you think about it, this, this scourge of dementia, and maybe there's something simple like physical activity that can really bring this and turn it around and uh, save the, uh, the basically health tsunami that's gonna come with uh, so many people that could potentially get dementia uh, at the current uh, figures. Okay, so anyway, keep moving. That's the bottom line. And uh, you know, one of the things that's interesting is that these people are all happy but, you know, it, it seems like there's also an attitude thing that develops. And I remember, you know, when you go to the gym sometimes, you know, I don't know, sometimes the people are happy, sometimes they're not. But I remember one of the first times was when I was in Copenhagen and they had a, a, a fitness place you could go to. So being that I've been too much on airplanes and everything, I went and was there. And here these guys were, were they, had their, they had four treadmills all lined up next to each other. And they were just having a ball. They were joking around and jogging and, you know, showing tricks they could do on the treadmill. And, uh, and just, uh, you know, really, um, and they would even joke about, did you remember what I just said? <laughs> oh, okay, good. So, okay. So in other words, exercise can build brain health. Um, it, it's coming clear now. Let's let's go deeper into the uh, story. And if this is going to be a real principle, there must be a mechanism. And oftentimes, when you have a mechanism, it promotes expansion of research in the field, because then you can really get a hold of it. You can find alternatives. You can find strategies, etc. And you might be able to even take a lifestyle and pair it with a pharmaceutical to get more benefit out. So how does exercise act on the brain? Well, <clears throat> you know, I was part of a MacArthur Foundation uh, study group that was looking at the effects of how people could be promoted to age successfully. It was the successful aging program. And <clears throat> one of the things that you came up with is that for those that did really well, there was physical activity you know, even including gardening and light physical activity that seemed to correlate to the uh, lack of cognitive decline. There are other things like um, self-esteem, a high uh, value of self-esteem seemed to, but that's a surrogate for other, lots of other things, and then social activity too. But, so I got to thinking about it, and what the heck is going on that how could physical activity basically translate to improving brain function. And so I went and did what you'd usually do. I looked in the literature, the scientific literature, and all I could find out is that if uh, you look at animals or people that run, it basically increases metabolism. Well, you know, I mean, you don't really need to read the literature to, find, to figure that out. <laughs> so I said, well, you know, so this was, Sometimes I like to go in the backyard and walk around, you know, and look out at the trees and everything and just think. And um, so I said, well, what the heck would really be the case that might, um, you know, give rise to some benefits? Well, at the time, one of the big molecules 
that was improving brain function and slowing down degeneration was this factor called BDNF. And this is called brain-drive neurotrophic factor. It's actually a protein that keeps neurons healthier. It's kind of like brain fertilizer, if you will. <laughs> you know, you, you sprinkle it on the neurons and they can resist damage. They can grow again after a little bit of damage and they're just all of a sudden healthier. And, um, you know, so I figured, well, this is an interesting thing to look at. So, you know, I said, well, it'd be nice to, to look at the effect of exercise in, in some animal models to see what happens to brain-drive neurotrophic factor. So I went to the lab and, you know, approached one of my best postdocs and um, told him about this and said, I wouldn't, would you like to work on the, you know, the project and maybe get some exciting data? And they said, well, Carl, we're really busy. And so maybe when we're done. So I went to another one, same story. So after a couple more, because I was running out of people, I went to my first year graduate student, who was a, a woman that had a degree in uh, physical therapy. And, you know, so she heard, of, heard about this and she says, oh boy, I'd, I'd love to work on that. So she did some experiments and lo and behold, um, found that this BDNF was induced in the brain by exercise. And what was surprising about it is I expected it would be mostly in the motor systems, you know, because the, the, those are going to be more active when you're exercising. It turns out the big surprise was it was in the hippocampus, which controls cognition. And I said, oh, wow. That is, that is turning, now the head has to turn around. You got to really think more about this because I was totally wrong. And the field was really wrong. So we published the paper, it got into Nature Magazine, which is the sort of time magazine of the scientific literature. And uh, I mean that as a positive way too. <laughs> so um, we did the experiments and lo and behold, it turned out BDNF was induced with exercise. Well, now all the postdocs want to work on it too, of course. <laughs> so I said, sure, you know, we'll, we'll develop some projects. And when I first presented this at a scientific conference, everybody was a little skeptical. And then, you know, good science makes progress when people replicate your findings. And this was controversial enough that people went and tried it by themselves in their own labs. And it was replicated until now. There's over a thousand replications of it. And it's one of the principles in the field that, uh, you know, it will, the brain can be reprogrammed and produce these health factors that are part of the brain's own healing. And, and, and they, it also helps learning. So, good news. And here's the story. Um, uh, Shawnee Nieper was the student that was a degree in physical therapy. And what she showed was that compared to sedentary animals, BDNF went up in the exercise animals, and it was kind of like a dose response, but eventually, with high activity, it goes down again. And this is probably what goes on with the marathon runners, because sort of you see them when they go across the finish line sometimes, and they're, they're basically a very bad version of blue uh, <clears throat> because of being anoxic. But um, this, in these rodents, they would uh, induce BDNF, and we published this in several uh, places and got replicated, et cetera. Okay, one of the things that is um, good is that you like to show that um, effects can be improved. We, we sort of wanted to look at uh, what's called object location memory, and this is the car in the parking lot story. Here's the animals um, that get put into a big arena with a couple objects. And then 24 hours later, one of the objects gets moved and the animal has to tell which one is moved. And the animals are curious about things so they will naturally go to the uh, new object in a new position because they're very sensitive to their spatial environment 
and can, can really do this spontaneously. So this doesn't require any particular training. In fact, you can do it in one trial and, and you know, get reliable data. So it's a very nice task in that there's not a lot of unnatural, you know, like swimming in a water tank or anything like that that's you know, cold water, et cetera, which would be, I think, pretty unpleasant. So, um, and the advantage of these types of tasks is they could be made more difficult uh, as well. So what we did then is to um, show that um, BDNF is, um, is basically increased with exercise. Uh, the 24-hour retention is improved. And with that um, exercise, BDNF uh, messenger RNA goes up. Um, and if we then use a what's called an inactivating RNA or a silencing RNA to, you could inject the BDNF, but if you've got the silencing RNA around, the BDNF doesn't really work and get a hold of the, the brain system that's needed to be activated. So you can then show that BDNF is really the critical molecule uh, underlying the exercise benefits by using the siRNA uh, and showed that that's really doesn't, it takes away the retention and it blocks the BDNF effect. So that was one of the first stories that really showed that yes, indeed, there's one molecule that is the readout in the final common pathway for the benefit of exercise in the brain. Pretty big story, actually. And this was done by uh, a graduate student that worked with me in 2013 and um, has continued in a career roughly in this area from there. Okay. Okay. So one of the interesting things is, you know, if you're a scientist and a lecturer, you sometimes end up more on the airplane than anywhere else. And I was getting tired of this sitting around in airplanes and figured, you know, and maybe I'm losing the benefits of my exercise program, you know, while I'm sitting around. And so I kind of got to think, how long is exercise really effective? You know, you, you're, you're gonna do this, but maybe it, it, you need to, if you skip a few days, maybe it's not gonna, the effects are gonna go away. And you know, muscle conditioning, for example, you know, doesn't necessarily last forever, so how long does, this, does the cognitive part of exercise? So what we did is investigate the possibility that there's a molecular memory for exercise. You know, there's a, there's a molecular memory for learning lists and items, but maybe there's similar vocabulary and mechanism to uh, build exercise. And so we began looking at that and um, you know, so ask the question of what is the role for frequency, duration, and intensity of exercise? And I won't go through all of the data on that, but I'll go through some of the key findings, is um, if you have an animal that has exercised um, <clears throat> for uh, two weeks, by one week afterwards, the levels go back down again. So they're not that long lasting. And you know, by that, you, know, you can't have, have trouble thinking about how's, how's the benefits so profound. Well, it turns out that um, if you just give a small amount of exercise, like two, like two days here, which doesn't by itself induce any real BDNF increase, but that if in fact there's one week of rest that goes down, and then if you give a brief uh, hit again, or a reminder of the exercise event of essentially two days. So um, exercise for two weeks, take a rest for one week, and then give a two-day reminder. It goes back up again. That's pretty cool. So in other words, you know, when you, you miss a day or two, you've got a window, and then you can get back and get all the benefits back without having to go through the whole conditioning thing again. 
And this has helped, you know, uh, formulate some exercise programs in the field now, and, um, and, you know, seems to be holding up really very nicely. So BDNF has a molecular memory for exercise, and it translates to the cognitive level. Um, <clears throat> so in what we found is that um, if you look at three days, it's still present. It's present at seven days, but by two weeks, it decays. Well, you know, that's not bad, two weeks. You know, that gives you a lot of time to reschedule yourself and get back into it. You know, if for some reason you can't have exercise, uh, you know, um, because of schedules and other problems. So you got a little window of opportunity to bring all the benefits back again for cognitive performance particularly. Okay. So this may explain then why exercise can be effective in humans despite widely varying exercise practices and inconsistencies. They'll skip days and even weeks. And um, this helps explain why in some surveys, like the initially where I started thinking about this, is the nurse's health study looked at the effects of exercise on cognitive health of nurses. And they looked across all the places in the United States and the data was gathered. And then I looked and broke the data down because it reported it by regions. And I said, well, you know, in Montana in the winter, there's no way in the world that people are getting the same activity patterns as they would in the summer. Or at least that's the assumption and that turns out to be the case. But, you know, what they're doing is that there is, a, there is a period of grace, if you will, and the body and the brain have a molecular memory to benefit the brain's health. It's really a pretty cool principle when the brain is looking after itself by working a little bit. Okay. So, <clears throat> now let me go into some of the epigenetic mechanisms and how it affects aging. Okay. Um, <clears throat> cognitive decline um, precedes neural degeneration. You think that degeneration is what's causing cognitive decline, but it turns out that that's not quite the case. And that um, if, in fact, you look at some of the studies in transgenic animal models of Alzheimer's disease, that the cognitive decline comes before any detectable effect on degeneration. So there must be another mechanism. And I know I ran this by a couple of my colleagues and they said, you know, you might be right, but what? And so I thought maybe there's a repression of gene transcription that develops with age and impairs neuronal function. If so, then this repression might be reversed and might account for some of the age-related cognitive decline that is recoverable. And that would be really good news because then it wouldn't be degeneration, it would be just repression. Um, so, um, we then looked into this and um, epigenetic controls the accessibility of the genes for transcription. You just take my word for that because it, the, um, the control of, of the readout of the gene is controlled by sort of a thing called epigenetics, or that's past genetics. Um, and one of the important repressive factors is a um, uh, mark that's uh, histone, on histone 3, lysine 9, when it gets trimethylated, it becomes repressive. And there's a, a colleague of mine um, that had developed a drug for inhibiting this particular formation. And this is where, you know, sometimes serendipity kicks in. As I was at a dinner, and it was one of these university dinners that we all just adore. And, uh, and I was sitting across the table from him, and I said, well, Larry, what are you up to these days? And he started telling me about these uh, compounds that inhibit, you know, um, <clears throat> the 
epigenetics on uh, the histones that control transcription or, you know, the reading of it. And um, so they said, well, boy, this is kind of interesting. So I went back and, um, you know, thought about it for a day, said, you know, I really got to follow this up. And so <clears throat> I convinced one of the postdocs, who initially was a little bit skeptical, but she said, okay, just so he stops bothering me, I'll go over and do it with him. <clears throat> and so we got some of the compound, and um, she said, well, came back a couple days later, she says, it worked. It actually recovered memory in these old animals that I injected, and it was really quite remarkable. And so with one injection, they went from cognitively impaired to normal. Wow. Yeah, no joke. I mean, that's pretty, pretty exciting. So there is this novel compound that reduces the histone methylation and um, is undergoing current, current additional developed by a really good chemist at UCI called Larry, by the name of Larry Overman. And this inhibits a known target which is the histone uh, methyltransferase that drives the formation of this particular inhibitory mark. So <clears throat> uh, right now, there's, there's a prototype in phase one trials, so that's sort of good news, and we'll wait and see how it goes along. It also turns out to be useful for uh, promoting healing uh, in, in, in the skin level, and so it has a number of benefits that uh, <clears throat> may encourage its development. Okay, so <clears throat> uh, with age, then we began to look at this factor. And with age in the, in the hippocampus, the compound increases. Uh, it does not, though, in every brain area, like the cerebellum, which is involved in, in just motor uh, function, but in the hippocampus, which is involved in cognition, it increases and it may be one of the factors that is inhibiting learning. And so what we did then is to try <clears throat> and inject the compound that inhibits the histone methylation and found that relative to a control that the injected animals can, provide, can do this little object recognition task really fine. They're, they're, these are about as good as it gets. So, <clears throat> but if they don't have the compound, these older animals can't really do the task. These are 18 to 20 month old mice and that's, they're really, you know, they only live for another half a year. So these are really old mice. But the fact that they can be restored is, is exciting news indeed. Okay, so <clears throat> it restores uh, uh, cognitive performance also in a, trans, in a mouse model of Alzheimer's disease, which is this 5X, um, you know, Alzheimer's disease mouse. And it, it, um, this is the way the animal tests out. They cannot do the task at all. But if we give them this compound, they can do the task. So it's really rejuvenating the aged brain to make it perform as if it's younger again. Cool, cool finding. So we can imagine that it, if this, when this becomes available, it could very well help rejuvenate uh, people's life and, and lifestyle. So, okay. <clears throat> now, what about the, the gene level? I wanna go and talk about, will physical activity regulate gene expression in the human brain? And so this was, this was sort of a a fantasy of mine that maybe we can figure out, because I've been doing studies on gene expression in, in rodent models, but I always wanted to be sure and, and find out, what about the human? And so, you know, I knew that one of the, my colleagues at Rush Medical Center in Chicago uh, had been doing some studies on longitudinally following people and measuring their cognitive performance. And so I thought, well, maybe um, he collected some postmortem tissue. Uh, he's a very thorough investigator and never let anything go to waste. So indeed, he said, uh, you know, I've got postmortem tissue. And I said, well, do you have some health history on them? And 
Do you know by any chance how much activity pattern they have? You know, like, do you have a record on their participating in a Y or a health exercise program for elderly, et cetera? He says, I can do better than that. He's, he had cases that he followed longitudinally and had postmortem and brain tissue available. So we got a hold of some of the tissue from these people that had actigraphy. Now, this is a, a pedometer that people were wearing. So he knew precisely how, what kind of activity they, patterns they had. And this is the way it looked. They had the low activity and the high activity. So what we did then is compare the gene expression patterns of these individuals versus these. And so we could find out how activity reprogrammed the brain. And, you know, I have to admit when I did this, I wasn't convinced that there would be anything in this at all. You know, it might be one of these nice ideas that doesn't work. But in fact, it turned out that um, when we ran some microarrays, which scans the genome and gives us every gene that changes, that the um, individuals that had high activity compared to those that are aged and um, an AD set were really uh, comparable. And we found that, in fact, <clears throat> the majority of genes with the, that had physical activity, instead of going down with aging, they went up or it didn't change. So basically, what was surprising is that physical activity was keeping the gene expression patterns out as if they were younger, you know, which is pretty amazing when you think about it. And the more, so the majority that showed decreased expression showed increased expression with physical activity. So thus the physical activity was rejuvenating the gene profile of these individuals. So what are, what's the function of these genes that changed? You know, does it, is it exotic? Because there's a lot of genes that we hardly know anything about. You know, we, we think we know a lot, we do know a lot, but we don't understand all of them. So are there specific functions? Well, two of the key things that change in, um, with age are synapses, and those are lost and compromised with age, and particularly uh, Alzheimer's disease, but with age, and then mitochondrial energy production go down. Um, <clears throat> so what happens then to the uh, functions of the genes that decrease with physical, increase with physical activity? Do these categories get affected? Because they're, they're known to be compromised with aging. And what we found is that like in the mitochondria, for example, the genes in the energy production machinery, all these blue genes are increased and you can see that the key functional areas in the electron transport chains that make the ATP and gives the cell energy are going up. You know, really quite remarkable and just not in one little complex, but in the key ones, the initial entry complex and the uh, one that makes uh, the last of the ATP. So these are, um, we're down with aging and up with physical activity in the energy production machinery of the brain. And in fact, um, when we looked at the effects of physical activity with aging and AD, from young to aged to AD, the expression patterns are going down. And with physical activity, the, from the low activity to the high activity, the patterns are going up. So it's basically counteracting the downward uh, decline that one sees with, um, with aging and Alzheimer's disease. And uh, these were uh, on some of the key synaptic genes that are listed down here. Uh, um, so, <clears throat> that's the, so this has become quite a powerful story. So the next stage uh, is really we need clinical trials to really document the, not just the small studies and the preliminary studies, 
but we need a serious uh, clinical study to follow the effect of physical activity on elderly people with a little bit of cognitive decline. So if we can take a little bit, maybe we can slow it down or stop it and then uh, document this. So in fact, there is a study now called EXERT, which I'm part of, uh, together with Laura Baker, who's from Wake Forest University. And um, we partnered up and um, are doing this study, which EXERT stands for the Exercise Trial. It's not too complicated. Uh, and this was her idea, and I thought that was really clever to be able to come up with this. And um, <clears throat> so uh, what it is, is we do need a cost-effective strategy to translate exercise intervention to the community setting, because it's nice to publish it in scientific journals, but let's do something with it. And um, so UCI and 14 other universities around the, the country are funded by the National Institute on Aging to partner with the YMCAs to essentially carry out the exercise study. So, you know, that's, that's a perfect outlet to translate into the community because that's what these people do. They're in the community. And once they finish the program at the Y, you know, with the exercise program, they've got a natural community environment to continue in however they wish. And then they've got the incentive that we hope will make a big difference in the exercise patterns of the elderly population. So these people complete their exercises at the uh, Y and under the supervision of a studied certified trainer in the first 12 months and then independently in the final six months. And so we're following their cognitive performance, uh, doing brain imaging, and doing biomarkers through this. And the study is still ongoing. Um, <clears throat> it's a 300-person study. Uh, we've enrolled now uh, 240-some individuals. And we, we had a goal to hit the 300 by December, and I'm, we're going to make it now. It was really hard initially to get subjects into this because it was four days a week of a commitment and you know, of a couple hours a day. So it's not a minor thing, but in fact, once the people get in, there's almost no dropout. So they like it. They just are hesitant to get into it. But once they're in there, they enjoy it. Um, and um, we'll, we'll find out how it goes. So this is the study. It's a sort of a year-long study with a six-month follow-up. And we do a walk test to get their physical fitness when they enter do brain imaging, cerebral uh, spinal fluid collection, and then cognitive assessment at uh, zero, six months, and 12 months, and 18 months to see how it goes. And then we'll try and follow these individuals even longer than that, but we'll have to get another grant for that. So <laughs> always another challenge. Um, <clears throat> so I'm we had some spontaneous comments from some of the people participating, and I wanted to go through one of them. Um, <clears throat> testimony from an individual that was in the EXERT trial. Uh, participating in the EXERT program for just about two months, I find to be an astonishingly transformative experience for which I am profoundly grateful. With EXERT, the transformations have been bodily and energetic. So who am I now? Tall, vibrant, upright, energetic, walking the treadmill twice a week, 45 minutes each time, walking out of doors as yet less often for shorter periods. Huge gratitude to and for everyone involved in EXERT. Incredible. I mean, if you had a, if you had a speech writer, it couldn't have been done any better. So this is the way the woman felt about improving her physical condition and doing this particular activity. And, um, you know, I was very excited and, you know, really uh, actually even surprised myself that how positive this was. So, um, <clears throat> so let me summarize then. Um, <clears throat> exercise increases BDNF in the hippocampus, the sort of brain fertilizer. Exercise builds a molecular memory, which allows rapid memory reactivation to essentially 
preserve the cognitive benefits of exercise. In aged humans, physical activity is associated with increased expression of genes regulating synaptic and mitochondrial function. And um, these are the targets that go down with age and they get rejuvenated by uh, exercise. In aging, the repressive mark uh, that I told you about, the histone 3-lysine-9 trimethylation increases and impairs cognitive function. I showed you that there is a uh, <clears throat> drug that docks this down again that restores learning, a UCI collaborator that I had mentioned, and that reducing H3 canine trimethylation restores learning in aged mice, and we're on our way to try and translate this to people. Thus, uh, H3K9 dependent gene expression may be one of the key factors that drives uh, brain aging. And it's not then degeneration, it's repression of genes. And that, if we can then find the key factor to unlock the door, we will be able then to keep more people functioning at a higher level uh, before they have to, you know, just rebuild the brain circuits. There's really going to be a big, big challenge. So with that, um, uh, I've had a lot of people involved in the study. Uh, my coworker, Nicole Birchold, who's been a really cornerstone of this. Uh, Chris Butler, who did a lot of the human work. Uh, Shika, who did some of the early animal studies that really put this on the map. And then a whole series, Laura Baker, who's running the, uh, the clinical trial exert with me. Uh, David Bennett, who's provided some of the tissues, and then finally some common facilities at UCI and elsewhere, and a bunch of collaborators. So thank you so much.